0: Thank you, Corey. Again, so thankful that you are here today. I hope you're encouraged. I gotta say, we were worshiping with the Kerrville Church of Christ last Sunday, and it was encouraging to be there. But there's no place quite like being here. Thank you all for your encouragement. And Corey, I gotta say, you're a great soprano. So, so don't 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 feel bad about that. But uh, and I also gotta say, the church. Sorry about all the the Perkins family up here today. That just kind of happened. We. We moved things around schedule-wise with the church, uh, with Missions Month and all that stuff, and then everything got pushed. Anderson doing Kids Devo, Coleman doing our communion talk. He had originally signed up for that back on March 5th, but it all got pushed back to this. So if it's too much Perkins family, uh, I understand. I understand. I mean, you know, we really only have one good member of of our family, and that's Allison. The rest of us are kind of... A little bit, you know. So, anyway, I understand that. But so glad you're here. This morning, I'm going to start with something that may be unfamiliar to our digital native generations, our millennials and our Gen Zs, but is very familiar to the generation of people in the room that are my age and older. Because all of us can remember when one of the staples of dentist office or our newsstands, if you have newsstands, or our coffee tables was Life Magazine. Life Magazine was everywhere. Life Magazine actually started in 1883 as a humor magazine, as a way to get Americans' attention and to kind of bring some humor into what was Western expansion in those. But in 1938, Life Magazine shifted its focus into what you know it for. It was a shift towards being a photojournalism magazine with this one singular goal. It's a simple goal. Life magazine existed from 1938 up till the millennia when it stopped being in print around the year 2000. It existed to be a magazine whose goal was to tell in pictures what life is all about. What life is all about. And I want to take for a moment... Life Magazine at its word. And if we were to do that and look at some of the pictures, if we could all imagine, and probably many of us in here can imagine a, an iconic picture from Life Magazine, what you would quickly discover is that that photojournalism magazine did a pretty good job of showing you what life is really about. It would probably be smart to include things that it didn't show. It didn't show you things about eating chicken bride steak. If it was around today, it didn't show us uh, sitting around scrolling and doom scrolling on the internet and on our phones. But what Life Magazine did so well is it told a story about life being bigger and more important and more meaningful than just our everyday mundane tasks. Life and the pictures it produced, what was really life worthy was pictures that produced emotion and brought us a sense of triumph of the human spirit that were awe inspiring and joyful. Here's some examples of some of the best pictures in the magazine's history. This is a picture of kids watching a puppet show in the 1940s in Europe. As you look at it, the longer you look at it, the better it gets. There's joy and wonder on their faces. Of course, this is one of their most famous photos, the kiss from Victory Over Japan Day in New York City. I love this picture of nurses. I can't remember what city this is in. I should have looked a little deeper into this, but this city had just won the World Series, and all the nurses in the downtown hospital left the hospital to go celebrate in a parade. Right? Isn't that awesome? like celebrating a World Series win. There's joy in those three. And then there's pictures like this of a West Berliner mourning through carrying a cross about the building of the Berlin Wall in the 1950s. And then, of course, maybe most famously, one that just puts you in awe is the first moon selfie. Somebody just said it's fake. Shut up. (laughs) I don't know who said that. Me and you got to talk later. All right. There is truth in the world, Barry. Uh, All right. I know he's joking. But isn't it incredible that sometimes, just in a picture, we really get a glimpse that we're gifted with the reason for human life, that we know that life is more than just about the next task or the next event, or the next meal. Life really is a gift, and it is transcendent. Our life goes beyond the next thing, or the next moment. I think we innately believe these words from Jesus in Luke twelve twenty three, when Jesus says, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. See, here's what we believe, church, at the start of our new series that we're kicking off today, that life, in the words of life that we receive from the word of God, are more than just concepts, more than just mental ideas. What we believe is that when Jesus offers us life, he's talking about fullness. He's not just talking about adding days and years to an existence in eternity, what he's talking about is gifting us and showing us the best way to live now. The words of Scripture are given to us as a gift to lead us to a life that is beautiful and God-centered. So we're going to start a series today, 10 weeks, called Words of Life. And our first word is going to be life. And for these weeks, the several weeks to come through the spring, we're going to dig in and unpack some of the words that define the Christian life. are words that summarize books and letters in the New Testament, the meaningful and powerful words that Christians live, li- live by that are life-changing, words like hope and redemption and righteousness and the cross and witness and peace. And may it be our desire that as we lean in each Sunday, not just to listen and go through the motions, but to learn and to be transformed by these words of life. And my prayer, my hope is that we match the curiosity, the curiosity and the hope and the desire of Peter. When in John six sixty eight, when Jesus has just watched thousands of disciples leave him, he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? And this is our hope for this series, to be like Peter who looks at Jesus and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's our prayer and our hope. Let's pray. Grab a, grab a hand of somebody next to you. I want to pray these words. I want to I want to pray that our curiosity and our desire will be like Peter's as we explore this word, life, today. Father, gather us close to you. Give us a hunger and desire today. Renew that hunger. Renew that passion for you. May we match this heart of Peter as disciples ourselves where we say, We've looked all over. And There's nothing like you, Jesus. Where are we going to go for life? You have the very words of life. Draw us close to that life today. Give me words and gifts of teaching, and Lord, let my spirit, my selfishness get out of the way and let you just do your, do your work. We love you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as you open up the Bible, the Bible wastes very little time in getting into this theme of life. In the Old Testament, when we look at life in the Old Testament, this word is going to appear hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament, but combined with the New Testament, the word life appears 535 some odd times in the text. But in the Old Testament, the Bible wastes no time in telling us a definition of what life is really about. Life in the Old Testament begins in Genesis 2 7, that human life is God breathed. It is only Adam, it is only humanity that God spends time in creation getting down in the dirt and making a man and then breathing life into. We see in Genesis 2 9, further definition of life and what it's about is that there's a tree of life that is this symbolic and and real place of connection with relationship with God, of everlasting life. We also see in Genesis chapter 3, very quickly in the Bible, that to go outside of a God-defined life has a consequence, that sin separates mankind from this life. But that's not the end of the story. As the story goes through the Old Testament, many, many occurrences of life, but one that really stands out is God's desire to extend life-giving covenant back to his people and to use his people as the ambassadors of that life to the whole world. In Genesis 30, 19, Moses will say to the people, I set before you life and death. Choose life. And of course, there's all kinds of ups and downs and places to go, and the Old Testament then gets into places of exile and difficulty and time away from covenant and time away from the promised land. And it's what way too much to talk about for our time this morning. But even in the prophets, you see a desire, even after exile, to come back to life. And I'll highlight a verse here in Hosea 6-3 that I just love Hosea's heart. He says, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea is speaking in prophetic and poetic terms to say, there's nowhere else for us to go. Life is in God. Now much more could be said about this from Genesis to Malachi but in short, life as defined and presented by our Old Testament authors and friends always has to do with connection to God. Life, and eternal life, is more than just an addition of days and years to a physical existence. If you were to think about, well, how does the Old Testament define life? We would say this, life by the Old Testament is found as a relationship with God a deeper sense of meaning and purpose, choose life. It's found in joy and strength, not fear and shame. The prophets have that theme over and over, especially Ezekiel and Isaiah. And it's found in unity of the community of people who are choosing life, not enmity and division. And the reason I run through that so quickly is I want you, before we unpack this word of life found in the New Testament. You need to know that this is the definition of life that Jesus and the New Testament authors are working with in the background. As Jesus speaks about offering life, as the New Testament authors write about life, they are going to be working with this idea of relationship and meaning and joy and unity. In the one book, there is one book in the New Testament though that gives us the most comprehensive view of what life is about. And it is the Gospel of John. I'd, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. We're gonna fly through some passages there today. And I want you to get fired up because John's view of life and life in Jesus is a remarkable view. So you're gonna to go to Big John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Big John. Uh, That's how I always remembered it as a kid, Big John. First, second, third John were Little John, and Big John was the Gospel John. But I want to ask you a question as you guys are turning there. When you hear words like John and life and maybe belief and eternity, what passage out of the Gospel of John do you immediately think of? John 3, 16, right? We know that passage. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever would believe would not perish but have what? Eternal life. Now this passage is an amazing and true. It's an incredible synopsis of the gospel, but the problem with John 3.16, and I, I don't know why I'm using that word. I probably should never say the problem with John 3.16, but the problem with John 3.16 is this. It's almost too well known. Here's what I mean by that. We know it so well that it becomes Christian white noise and it loses all of its meaning. Because when Jesus speaks of eternal life in John here and in John 3.16 and throughout the Gospel of John, he's not just talking about a life that will last forever. He's talking about something much richer and much fuller than that. Nor is he talking at all about, well, if you just believe, you get a free ticket to heaven. Life in John and presented by John is much richer and deeper. Let me explain that. So we have this word eternity, but in Greek, the word is ionios. And we translate it in English in places like John 3.16 as Eternal. And for us as Western thinkers, when you think of eternal, you immediately think of forever. We think of that word in terms of quantity, right? How long is eternity? Well, we can't fathom it. We think of time and numbers and, and we, it blows our mind. But that's not how the ancient Near East thought, nor was that how Greeks thought about this word ionios, When they heard of eternal life, Ionios life, zoe, Ionios zoe, what they didn't think of was quantity, they thought of quality. A certain kind of life, one greater and fuller than what the world has to offer, a life to the full, a place of unity and joy and strength with people around you, a life that didn't only last forever, but was worth lasting forever. Does that make sense? And so you've got to have that definition. We've got to change our definition of eternal life to start to understand what John means when he says this word, life. So keep that fuller definition as you hear these words from John. John 1, 4. John will say about Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The life that John describes here, first little breath of his gospel, is one that is found in the quality of Jesus' own life. He is making the proclamation that Jesus himself is life, walking around, vitality in the flesh. And it's something that he wants to share. Consider more words from Jesus, and you'll start to understand this word even more clearly John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, look at how he uses the word life. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 4, 13 and 14, to the Samaritan woman, Jesus answers her and says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come up as a spring of water welling up to eternal life, quality life. In John six thirty five, Jesus declares, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he also says this to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now here's the point: John presents this word "life," not just as a number of days, but as a way of living now. John 17:3, it's not on the screen. This is eternal life, that you would come to know the Father and the Son that He sent. This word is more than just ticket to heaven language or something that's coming later. This word as New Testament defines it, what the Bible defines it, the fuller definition of Ionios and life is a life that is the best way, the most flourishing life, the good life. Not one that just lasts forever, but one that is full of shalom and peace and trust and completeness. And what John is trying to say in short, For us, is that Jesus is the life. Jesus is life. And as Christians, we are people who are living the Jesus life. So Coleman alluded to this earlier. Um, This past week we were blessed, so blessed, on Tuesday morning to get to hear one of the mom's who's being ministered to and living on the campus at Arms of Hunk Medina, tell her story. This lady's name was Katie. She came in about 8 o'clock Tuesday morning to share her story before we went out and did our work projects. And she was dressed in her Whataburger uniform. She worked at Whataburger. And all the boys' eyes lit up because they thought they were going to get free samples or something like that. But Katie went on, and I'll tell her story very short. There's so many more details I could share. But she basically said this about her time. She'd been at Arms of Hope since last fall, just a few months. And when she got on campus, others other than Katie would say she was probably one of the most difficult people to get along with that they've had in their history. Katie was gruff. Some of the workers that have been there for years and have ministered to many, many hundreds of different ladies said, I was afraid to get in a car with her because I didn't know what would happen. She was angry at the world. She was coming off addiction as a teenager and as a young lady. She was coming off all kinds of troubles and hardships. She was pregnant when she got on campus. Had this little boy now. Now. But then she began to describe her story of what began to open up in her life when she started to see Jesus not as an answer just for eternity, but as the answer for her life right now. And she shared with our group how much she had changed and when her least favorite staff member, a guy named Scott, they grew up in the same town in Virginia and somehow were at arms of hope together, They could not get along, but when Jesus started to open up her life, it was her going to Scott to say, I want you to baptize me because Jesus has changed me, and I see that he's changed you. This is what John is trying to talk about, a life that is Jesus-centered, and I think we all want to say, I want that, and if you have that, we all want to say what? I want more of that. I want more of the life that Jesus promises in John 10.10 that he says, I've come that you can have life and have it abundantly or to the full. So a life, what's that look like? If we go through the Gospel of John, John highlights, first of all, it's already on the screen, a life that is the Jesus kind of life, first of all, is umbilical life. Now I apologize for that crude description. But this is really what John gets at when he describes life in Jesus. Again, we falsely conceive sometimes of eternal life, of something that God just hands us. Here's a ticket. Here's here's your way. Get on board. And then we leave our Christian life alone. Recently, I heard a 20-year-old describe the church this way. As he'd rejected church, somebody asked him, why had you rejected what you grew up with? And he said, it's the same old song and dance. You come in, we sing a few songs, somebody gives a 15 to 25 minute TED talk, and then you pay for your admission on the way out. It's just goods and services of religion. He's right for a lot of the way that we do church. But that is not what John is describing. He is describing a life in Jesus that is umbilical. It's not just a ticket. It's not something we pay for. The church doesn't exist to be a place of offering goods and services for religion. The better biblical image is one of connection. That Jesus is our source, our tether. Look at what he says in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 57. This is a tough teaching. This is what causes some disciples to leave Jesus. But he says this about our relationship. He says, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. I think we often believe as a church, this is is not in my notes, this is just off the top of my head, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but we often believe in church that I will know a living God when I die, then I can know a living God. Guys, that is a false gospel we believe and follow a living Father that we are connected to. It's umbilical life. John develops this further in John 15 with imagery of the vine, right? I am the vine and you are the branches. What's he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Now that's not a demand on our life. It's a call to relationship. It's a call of discipleship. John is trying to re- rewire our brains for intimacy with God in that the Jesus life is developed through relationship. Now, how many of y'all can remember having the chicken pox? I know that's no longer a thing except for anti-vaxxers out there, but, uh, but uh, I, can, I can barely remember having the chicken pox, right? I thought I had the vaccine. I talked to my mom yesterday about chicken pox for about 20 minutes because I wanted to know more. I thought it was a piece of cake. My mom said, no, you were horribly sick. Your, your, you were, your fever was running 104.5. You thought you were drowning in water. We, my, your dad was gone. I thought I was going to take you to the ER. I was like, huh, I remember it being a piece of cake. I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> well, I was four years old. My brother brought it home for first grade, gave it to me. I don't remember much other than it being a piece of cake because I don't remember the, the fever nightmares I was having. But here's what I do remember. I remember having the chicken pox, and the one piece of advice I got over and over and over from my mom, over and over, she told my brother, until she was probably blue in the face, was probably the same advice you got when you had the chicken pox, don't scratch. Right? (laughs) Now, it doesn't matter what it is. There's some good advice in that. Because it doesn't matter if it's dry skin, eczema, a mosquito bite, a healing scar, If you've got stitches and it's starting to heal underneath the surface, you just want to scratch that, don't you? You know what I'm talking about, right? A doctor, though, is never going to tell us this. If you've got an itch that needs to be scratched, a doctor's never going to tell you, just keep scratching it, right? (laughs) Because eventually, you're going to be satisfied. (laughs) Just keep going. No, a doctor's never going to tell tell us that. Here's the point. And this is why we need umbilical life, a connected life. An itch can never be satisfied. It can only be healed. In our life, we chase so many itches. And we try to scratch it. We have an itch in our life for meaning and purpose. And we try to scratch it with all kinds of different things. We fill our lives with all kinds of bad habits and bad uses and bad thoughts. But an itch can't be satisfied. An itch can only be healed, and life is only healed umbilically through feeding on Jesus, through having a deep relationship with him. The second thing that John tells us is that Jesus' life is bold life. It's not just umbilical, but because it's umbilical and I'm connected to Jesus, I have this way of being bold in life. In John 4, 50, an official's son is about to die. And, he comes to the offic- and the official comes to Jesus and says, I need you to save my son. And Jesus replies, go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. As this official appeals to Jesus to save his son, Jesus does save him. But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go home with the official. What he does instead is he forces the man into a position of bold faith. He says, you're going to have to go home and check yourself. He had to go back without Jesus walking beside him. He was going to have to take Jesus at his word. See, Jesus' life is bold because it's more than just a mental checklist. Faith is not just as Brad was talking about this morning in Bible class, it's trust, it's obedience, it's allegiance, it's dependence. It's a commitment of my whole self in boldness to take Jesus at his word. And that's the kind of life John calls us to. So i got a question for y'all. Where has Jesus told you to go? Where has he asked you to go and trust? What's the most recent nudge you can remember by the Holy Spirit that you did not listen to? I don't like that question because there's too many, eh, amen? Too many. But I think Jesus asks us in life in Him often to be bold. Where has Jesus told you to go in trust? And what are you waiting for? And finally, Jesus' life is sacrificial because it's tied to him and we're tethered to him we can be bold we're living out this relationship but there's a catch there's always a catch and the catch with jesus is this there is a price tag and john presents it painfully plain in john chapter 12 Jesus' words again, he says about life in him. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, Jerry, I know you love this for apples, right? Jerry has this great saying that I love about apples. If the seed dies, it does what? It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. There's much more we could say, but to sum up life in the Gospel of John is to say life in Jesus is sacrificial. You could be put off by these words. You could say, man, I don't like that he says we must hate our life. But Jesus here is used in hyperbole. But we also know that he's using hyperbole as we also realize how deep of a truth he's onto. Of course, Jesus here is not speaking about self-loathing. Jesus is speaking here to draw out the point, a point we deeply know that life really is found on the other side of me when I lay down myself. Church, don't you innately know that infatuation with self only leads to death? It kills us. Who said, what kid was it, Asher? He said, what was life? Anderson asked him, he said, it's the opposite of death. He's on to something. They kill a lot of animals out at the Matthews farm, but anyway, (laughs) he knows that, right? We know this, so self-preservation kills. It doesn't bring life. Self-satisfaction, selfishness kills, but we do know this. When I lay down myself and when I share and I invest and I serve and I put others above myself, what happens? Life blooms, doesn't it? Love and life in Jesus is not a warm fuzzy feeling. It is a choice and a disposition of care and generosity for the other. That's a word of life. If we want life, it is found in relationship with Jesus. It is found when we choose to do bold things in his name because you'll discover that what he promised you, you can hold him to his word, that he will be with you and he will get you through it. You can do things you never thought imaginable. And it's life. It's found on the other side of self sacrifice. Man, I love this about our tribe. I love that in the churches of Christ we uphold baptism because baptism is that amazing outward witnessing scene where we get to see somebody say, I'm no longer trying to live by myself, but I am going to tether myself to Jesus and sacrifice myself. In my ways, because life is found in him. I have a friend who preaches. You guys know him well. His initials are D.D., David Duncan. And he said the other day, he was telling me that he had a guy gripe him out. He said, all you do is ever preach baptism at the end, uh, in your sermons. All you ever do is preach baptism. He said, well, sir, you're asleep for most of it. You're just awake for the end. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> But we got to talking about that, and I said, well, why do you? I said, David, remind me, why do you preach that every week? And he said, because it's the call back to life. And David's right. Baptism is not a loss, it's a win. It's not a putting away of self so you can live a boring life. It's putting away of self so you can live a full life in Jesus, so that you can be connected to him, and so that you can start to learn to live here and now, a life that will last forever. You hear that? So that's our call this morning. Our baptistry's full. It's clean because of AIM two weeks ago. And we love that. Uh, but it still has the power to take away sin, not because of the water, but because of the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross. If you need anything this morning, uh, prayers, thoughts, just praise, whatever you need this morning, We're here to receive that. Our shepherds will be in the back as well. Let's stand together and let's sing. Everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations.